Thank you, brothers and sisters, for those of you who have prayed for me this week. I, I come to this morning um, with a sense of his strength and his help, so I really pray that will come through. But I'm so grateful for your prayers. Uh, they make a difference uh, in, in the lifting of, of the word each week for me, which I feel as a heavy, heavy load uh, each week. And um, I feel like I'm always behind in, in some aspect or another in terms of giving God what he deserves, but your prayers help me uh, so much. So I appreciate it that I, I come this morning uh, with a sense of hope that he's going to meet me and meet us as we look at his word. We're in Malachi, and we're coming back after a couple of weeks off of Malachi for Easter, and we're in Malachi 3. So if you do have your Bibles, we, we have many passages today. So we're going to start in Malachi, and then we're going to jump quickly into New Testament passages because of the subject matter. But I do want to start and take us back to the, the, the place we were in Malachi 3, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 12, and God is talking to the church about their giving, um, or the the Israel, uh, the nation of Israel about their giving. Um, I do want you to know, especially because I see some new faces today, I'm, I'm a little bit self-conscious. We don't usually talk about giving. Um, this is part of Malachi. This is part of his book, and we're going to talk about it. Our, our church, uh, we, I haven't preached about giving, as far as I can remember, ever in my 10 years of ministry. And I, in this church, uh, yeah, about 10 years in this church as a pastor. I've, I've never given a message on giving as far as I can remember. There might be one out there, but I don't remember. Um, and I'm saying that because I'm, I'm conscious that when pastors talk about giving, they often um, come under the scrutiny of, of people in terms of thinking, well, are they trying to just <clears throat> exploit me? Because the truth is, pastors in some churches do exploit people. And, um, and I pray that that's not in my heart, and I, don't, I trust that it's not in my heart. But it is in God's word, so it is something that we have to look at. Um, but that, that's not where we're going to, uh, to stay Sunday after Sunday. So, um, but that's the last I will do. I'm trying to apologize for myself and not apologize for God and his word. <clears throat> starting in uh, Malachi 3, starting in verse 12. Would anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the entire nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. If I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, and then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor will the vine in the field prove fruitless to you, says the Lord of armies. All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. This is the word of the Lord. So as we saw last time, God is calling this Israel to repent of their refusal to give the commanded tithe in their covenant, the covenant they made with Moses on Mount Sinai and with God when they became a nation. And we saw that God was calling them to repent of their refusal to give their tithe to him, not because he needed cash, but because he wanted their hearts. See, their wealth was central to the, que to the question of where their trust and their hope really was. Did they trust God as their source of all things? Or did they trust their wealth? 
and their possessions and their ability to secure it. If they trusted their wealth, then they would hoard because their wealth was all they had. It was their security. It was their life. If they trusted God, then they would share what they had because he was their provider and would sustain them no matter what they shared. So God's response was direct. You're robbing me. You're withholding the commanded ties in the covenant that we made together. You're stealing from what is owed to me in the covenant that we made with Moses. But their theft was deeper. They were stealing God of glory. They were depriving him of the trust and the honor and the hope that he deserved. He deserved their hope to be in him as their only provider and not in their money. And this was kind of an idolatry. Their hope was in themselves and in their wealth. And God took it very seriously and his response was serious. He says, I've brought curses now upon your produce, upon your flocks, upon your wealth. There's a curse. It's not going well for them. They're not seeing abundance and provision that they were seeing perhaps in past generations. But God's call to repentance is also amazing. He says, return to me and I will return to you. That's in the verse just prior we didn't read. Return to me and I will return to you. In other words, if they would obey God, they would see the kind of God he was. They would see that he is their provider. They would see an overflow in their blessings. And he would show them that that indeed he was their only hope, but he was their sufficient, overwhelming hope. Right at the outset, as we look at this picture, we need to make clear We're not under this covenant. We're under a new covenant with different principles and different rules, so to speak. So it's really important that, you know, I I heard a sermon on this uh, and the pastor read through it and, and he said, many of you are robbing God of the tithe that you're owed, that he's owed. And and I I just, I want to tell you at the outset, we got to be really careful to talk with that kind of language. And I'll explain to you as we go why we need to be really careful. But it has to do with the fact that we're under a different covenant. And what I'm hoping today though is that we'll see both the similarities and some of the important differences between these two covenants. And right at the outset, I do want to remind you or or tell you that two principles completely transcend covenants. In other words, there are two major principles here in this text that completely maintain relevancy for us. There's still principles that are true in God's relationship with us. And two big ones I want to bring you today is that our hope in God, just like their hope in God, is revealed by how we deal with our wealth. Our hope in God, just like their hope in God, is revealed by how we deal with our wealth. And the second principle is that generosity towards God and his people does result in generosity from God. To his people. Generosity towards God and his people results in generosity from God to his people. So these are two big principles. I want to start with the first, putting our hope in our wealth or not, or, or rather our hope in God is revealed by how we, I'm sorry, I'm getting that wrong. Our, our hope in God is revealed by how we deal with our wealth. 
If you might remember the last time we did this message, um, this chapter, a few weeks ago before Easter, I asked you to consider Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verse 21, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, if you want to know where a person's desires and hopes lie, look at where they store up and where they, they hold up their treasures. Being really careful here. This does not mean that if we spend more on a home mortgage each month than we do on giving to the church or to the poor, that we don't care about God like we should. This does not mean that saving for a reasonable retirement in a season of life where we cannot generate income is wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that saving up for our children's education or our daughter's marriage is wrong. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but the fool gulps his down. So Jesus knows that we need houses. He knows that we need jobs. And most of us, that we need cars to get to those jobs. He knows that we need insurance by law in in our state to drive those cars. Most of us see health insurance as wisdom. He, He wants us to understand that he knows those things. He commands us to earn a living wage for our lives. Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, if a man will not work, not he can't, but if he will not work, he should not eat. Jesus wants that man to work and have enough to provide for his family and to give some to those who need. So Carson and Stott explain that what Jesus is not prohibiting when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What he's not prohibiting is is making sensible provision for your life now and for the future. What he is prohibiting and against is covetousness. The word we might think about is a miserly Scrooge-like existence where you're hoarding for yourself and always wanting more for yourself. Literally, the word Jesus uses for treasure can refer to a storehouse or a treasury where while you see needs around you and you can share, you instead take all you have and you store it up for yourself. If I store up all my wealth and all my resources for myself, and my future, and offer nothing to those who need. That tells me where my hope and my dependence really is. It tells me whether I really believe that God is my provider, or whether me and my wealth is my provider. In Luke 12, when Jesus tells the disciples to sell their possessions and give to the poor, it's such an interesting dynamic. He doesn't appeal to them directly upon morality. That's the right thing to do to give and to share. He appeals to them based on trust in God's generosity towards them. He says to them, God, look, he knows how to feed the birds. They don't even keep storehouses. They don't have refrigerators. Every day they get their meal. He knows how to clothe the flowers of the field better than Solomon's royal designers could ever create designs for him and beauty for him. Do you think he doesn't know how to feed you today and how to clothe you today? So he appeals to the generosity of God's heart and to the sovereignty of God over all things. And he also appeals to their self-interest, not selfish interest, but to their self-interest. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not 
not storing up and hoarding up all your wealth on this earth, but, but give and know that God is not gonna let you lose anything you give. He's gonna credit that to your eternal account. He says, he says give because God, he actually uses this word, God delights to give you his kingdom. Give because God delights to give to you his kingdom and he will give to you. The rock that we need to stand on in order to use our wealth the way that God calls us to is the rock of confidence in his provision for us. If we don't believe, if we don't have hope that God is going to sustain us materially in the things we need, we're not going to be able to give out of faith. We're not going to be able to give out of hope. The only place we can probably give is out of fear. And it's going to be begrudgingly. And it's not going to please God. So God says, get your eyes set on the fact that I'm a generous God and I will generously provide for you. Confidence that God will provide for us is the rock that we need to stand on in order to use our wealth the way God desires. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, <clears throat> Paul warns the believers about the desire for riches. He says, wanting to get rich is a trap. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is. He says the love of it, the kind of love that you have for the God who's supposed to be your hope. When you put that hope in money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. He tells Timothy, he says, flee from it. Get rich quick, schemes, flee from them. Desires to have more and more and more, flee from those thoughts. Flee from it. It's spiritual cancer. He says, no, be content, Timothy. You have food, you have clothing. He doesn't say this, but certainly we would, we would add, you have shelter, be content. But then a few verses later, he addresses the wealthy in the church. Some of the people in their church had money. Paul doesn't explain, Timothy doesn't explain where that money came from. But after what he just said about wanting to get money and wanting to get rich, to get rich, to get rich, <laughs> I would have braced for impact if I had a generous bank account. But listen to how Paul motivates their hearts. It's not what you'd expect. It's not what I expected. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, listen, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's crazy compared to what I would have thought God would have said. Compare, to, I, don't put your hope in your wealth, but put your hope in the God who's richly provided provided you with everything for your enjoyment. Do you mean it's okay to enjoy things? Yes. Do you mean it's okay to, to see that God sometimes richly provides for us? Yes. Don't put your hope in that wealth you have. Don't put your hope in your treasures. They're fleeting. You might have a great bank account today and a great 401k. It might all be gone tomorrow. But do you know who won't be gone? God. The one who provided you with the great 401k one day and the one who took it away the next day. 
He's going to provide for you and sustain you. So where's your hope? Is it in the fact that you had a great 401k and you were very peaceful? Or the fact that you've got nothing left in that accountant today and you're ready to jump off the skyscraper like some of the Wall Street guys did during the Depression? They, they did. Some of those guys jumped to their death when God crushed their bank accounts. Because where was their hope? It was in their bank accounts. They were really happy on Sunday, but then come Black Monday, they were not happy. They had no hope, and they killed themselves. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's as old as Jesus' words here in Paul's commandments. But but I, I want us to stop and think about this phrase. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is incredible grace. God is a giver. He richly provides for us. In seasons, we are richly provided for. Sometimes, we are richly provided for. But he always provides for us. He always sustains for us. And he wants us to enjoy what he has provided. He provides it for us so that we would enjoy it. It is good and right to enjoy the blessings that God has given. In one of his other, in one of his other letters, Timothy talks about the times uh, that are coming in the, the last days, he says, when, when doctrines will be taught by demons, he says. And these demons will forbid in their teaching. People will come up with these teachings, but the teachings really come from demonic forces. They forbid men to marry. And they forbid them to eat certain foods. And Timothy says, that's from demons. Or Paul says to Timothy, that's from demons to forbid men to marry. I don't know if this is what Paul is talking about, but I think the, the priestly celibacy for the Catholic Church is a huge mistake. I think it's probably a manifestation of that kind of demonic denial that's not God's. Their insistence, I should say, that people who are going to enter into full-time vocation have to, by demand, not be married. They're forbidden from marrying, forbidden from eating certain food. God says, not only is that demonic, but God, he says, gives you these things because they're good and he wants you to enjoy them. That's in the Bible. He wants you to enjoy food. He wants you to be able to enjoy marriage. So do not put your hope in your riches. Do not put your hope in what you enjoy, but put your hope in the God who gives it to you, the God who will provide it for you. And in doing that, then, when your hope is in God and not in your riches, and your hope is not in what you get to enjoy or what you may not enjoy, but your hope is in the God who provides, then, Paul says, they will be able to do the next commandment. So the rich, after hearing that good news, hear this commandment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You might have riches today, but you're not going to have riches on your last day on this earth. You can't take it with you. But if you share and you're generous with your riches now, you will be storing up a spiritual treasury that will meet you in heaven and last forever. That's what his promise is. But again, what's the basis for generosity? It's God's generous. He's gonna continue to be generous to you. Our acts of generosity must be rooted in not in our 
great faithfulness, but in God's great faithfulness, in God's generous heart. One of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the Bible for me and probably for you, one of the things I, I can barely even comprehend is the day that God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on an altar as a burnt sacrifice. Spoiler alert for those of you who are not familiar with this story. God does not want him to kill his son and God doesn't let him kill his son. But there's a test here. Isaac is perhaps his greatest possession outside of God. Isaac is his greatest earthly possession. It's his greatest relational possession. Isaac is the promised child that he was going to receive from God who would bless all the nations, who would become a great nation and through whom God would would bring the Messiah. How much Isaac, uh, Abraham knew of that, I don't know, but, but I do know that Isaac was the child of his heart. And God said, give me your son. And Abraham was able to go up to the mountain Moriah and put his son on an altar and offer him to God. And that's when God holds his hand back and says, don't put a hand on that child. How did Abraham do that? You might think it was because Abraham was incredibly incredibly religious, that he was incredibly resolved to God's sovereignty and whatever fate God had, good or bad for him, he was just gonna, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. That's blessed be the name of the Lord, which is good. That's a good attitude to have. But what the scripture says is very different. It says that Abraham believed in God's promise to him about Isaac. He believed what God said. God said, I'm gonna make him through him, your descendants are going to be like, out, are going to outnumber the stars. God had made this promise to Abraham before Isaac even came. God continued to believe that promise. Even when God asked for Isaac back, God continued to, Abraham continued to believe the promise of God. Well, now God's asking for Isaac's life. How is he going to continue to believe that promise? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us, it says that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac back from the dead. That's what Hebrews 11 says. He put him on that altar, believing that he was probably going to walk back down the mountain with him. Maybe he believed it would happen next year. He probably didn't put God on a timetable for it. But my point is, it wasn't his stoic morality or his resignation to just destiny and fate that, that allowed Isaac, Abraham to, to offer God this incredible sacrifice. It was his trust that God would keep his promise to him. You promised me Isaac. You promised Isaac was gonna become many nations. You, you promised all the tribes of the earth would be blessed through him. So you're not taking him now, like forever. I'll give him back to you. He believed that God was faithful. He believed that God would be faithful to him. That's how he was able to give. That's how he was able to share. He believed God was going to share with him and be faithful to him. That gives God glory, right? He just thought, God, you're so generous. You're so good. You're, you're true to your promises. You've made this promise. God gets the glory. So putting our hope in our generous God who provides for us richly, is our rock for being generous with others. And, and let's think about generous provisions that God gives us. Why does God provide for these particular folks in Timothy's letter richly? Why were they even rich to begin with? Like, they were Christians, they had a lot of money. 
why, why what, sh- shouldn't they just have given up everything when they first came to Christ? Well, we'll get into that a little bit later. But, but, but I want to talk about the reason why God does provide for us because it's clear as day and we need to not pass it. We've seen one thing already. God provides for us because he wants us to enjoy the provisions he's given. We, he wants us to experience his generosity ourselves personally. But there's another reason. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to share with others. I know this isn't rocket science, but it's really important basic stuff. We are blessed by God to be a blessing from God. When God gives us much, he gives it not only for us to experience it, but to share it. We're blessed by God to be a blessing from God. Some of us in this room have much more than we need. Some of us don't. But for those of us who have more than we need, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 tells us very clearly why we have more than we need. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. That means much, tons, a lot. (laughs) He's able to make all gifts abound to you. Why? So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God has given you more than enough so that having enough for yourself, you might abound in good works. You might share with those who don't have enough. God abounds in giving to you so that you might abound in good works. Verse 10 continues. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. He, that's God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your wealth. No, the harvest of your righteousness. Well, he is going to increase their wealth in order that their righteousness might increase, their righteousness in giving. God has supplied us seed to sow. In other words, God has given you the very gifts to earn an income, Paul tells these these believers. God has supplied the seed that you sow with. He has given you brains and hands. He has seen then that our sowing, our working, has then yielded a crop. It's produced provision for our life. But the goal is not only for our provision, it's for a harvest of righteousness, Paul says, that comes from sharing generously. So, (laughs) that's why verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way. Paul is preparing the Corinthians to make good on a commitment they had made to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. They had made a big show of we're really gonna give, we're really gonna do this. But when it came time, they were a little bit, they were struggling a little bit. (laughs) Are we really gonna sign this check? And he strengthens them, them with this confident assurance that God will be there for them. And then he goes on to say that the result of their giving will be thanksgiving and glory to God. When those touched by our generosity know that it's generosity in the name of Christ and they realize that it's because our heart belongs to Christ, it increases their hope in Christ. They see his transforming power at work in our hearts. And they're deepened in their conviction that Jesus is real and that he's powerful and that he's good. And thus they depend on him more because they see him more through our care. So we give to bless others. We give because we have a giving God. 
and we give because it gives others hope in a giving God. We give to bless others. We give because we have a giving God who's going to be generous to us. And we give because it gives others hope in a giving God. The rest of this message is going to be a little bit more technical, detailed application. I want to look at new covenant principles for giving. Like, how do we give? How much do we give? Who do we give to? At the outset, I want to say that because the new covenant is the new covenant, and because it's a covenant primarily of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and not the external laws written on stone, much of these decisions are going to be between you and your conscience as the Holy Spirit and the word of God inform that conscience. There aren't going to be, another spoiler alert, God's not going to tell you exactly what to give. But there are some clear principles. And we're going to go through those principles. So there's about seven or eight of them, and I'm going to try to go through them kind of quickly here. First, family first. First principle, family first. You can call it family first. And I mean, I don't mean church family. I mean at the dinner table family. Those responsible for immediate family members, for certainly for children. I don't mean adult children necessarily, but I mean for children and possibly for elderly or disabled parents should be prioritizing, providing for them. For example, a husband's first duty is to provide for his family as well as he can. The word says that a man who will not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, even the unbelieving culture knows that fathers are supposed to provide for their children. And so that's where our our first duty of giving goes. Second, we give unto Caesar. We give unto Caesar. As Christians, we are called to honor the authorities that God has established, whether we like them this election cycle or whether we don't like them this election cycle, they're the leaders that God has established. And we're to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. God is not pleased if you're giving to his people and stealing his honor by cheating on your taxes or your car registration. God's commanded you to obey the laws and authorities that are not forcing you, by the way, to disobey him when you're being forced to disobey God, then you have to take your stand against the government. But unless that's the case, like wearing a mask indoors, it's not pleasant, but God says, obey the government. Pay your taxes. Pay your bills. That's how, by the way, your worship, that's how you worship God. Since God's the one telling you to obey the government in cases where it doesn't preclude you from worshiping him, then when you do obey the government, guess who you're obeying? You're obeying God and he's pleased. Do you ever think that God is pleased with your tax return that's fair and honest and on time? Or as on time as you could get it. He's pleased with late ones if you pay the penalty. My point is God's pleased in those things. They're not just, ah, stupid government. No, you're pleasing the Lord. You're trusting him. He cares about it. So number two, give unto Caesar. Number three, No exact percentages are given in the New Testament, but generosity is commanded. Number three, no exact percentages for giving is commanded in the New Testament, but generosity is commanded. Not percentages, but generosity. Listen, exact giving percentages, like the tithe, which means 10, 
are not given in the New Testament. It's just the truth. The, the, the fact that the new covenant is not the old covenant, the fact that we eat pork and the old covenant believers couldn't, the fact that we can wear cotton and wool blended shirts and the old covenant believers couldn't, the fact that we don't follow specific Sabbath regulations on Saturday and that the old covenant believers had to, the fact that we don't offer turtle doves at a temple and the old covenant believers did, the fact that neither the apostles nor any of the New Testament writers nor the Jerusalem council that meant to tell the Gentiles how to follow God ever imposed the temple tithe on the Gentile church should be enough to convince you and I that we're not under the specific giving requirements of the nation of Israel. Some of you guys have been tithing your whole lives. God has blessed you for that. It has meant much to God. But I would be doing you a disservice. I mean, it would probably be easy in my flesh if I could say to you, give this much to the church every Sunday and then I could, you know, find my security in your giving. <laughs> but I can't do that and be faithful to the word of God. I can't do it. Many godly pastors and teachers commend, not command, but commend giving a tenth of your earnings to the church as a good practice. And the best argument that I've heard about that is that they would say, this is a good place to at least start with. And they'll argue that since we have an even better covenant than Israel had, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who's made us new, which the Israelites didn't have, and, and we should be even better givers. And that's a commendable and, you know, it's got some game, that argument. I don't mean to be glib about it. I'm just saying that, that gives us something to think about. It's a good argument for tithing to your local church we, and we should note that Jesus did not come to make us less generous than Israel, but greater. But that is very different than me telling you that tithing is a command and then judging you or others for not holding that view. I can't do that. And you shouldn't do that either. <clears throat> Paul makes a point in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's a great place to look at in terms of understanding God's heart forgiving. Of saying again and again in different ways, each one of you should give according to what he has decided in his own heart. Why would he say that if technical specific percentages were mandated? He would just say, you know the tithe rule. You have to give that. But he doesn't say that. So does he say anything? Yeah. He says, be generous. He says, be generous. You're a new creature in Christ. God's been generous with you. He's going to continue to be generous and faithful to you. So you, you should be generous. And you'll reap from that generosity. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that later. Fourth, fourth, proportional giving. God's commandment in the New Testament is proportional giving. Generous giving by the poor who have very little to nothing is celebrated by God. Don't get me wrong. The widow in Mark 12 who gave the two pennies that she had left of all that she had, she was praised by Jesus. He said she gave more than all those rich Pharisees. She's remembered, she'll be remembered for eternity. She's been remembered in every church, you know, through centuries now on purpose by Jesus. She had, she gave out of her poverty, Jesus said. She gave all she had. Jesus celebrated her as an example. The, the very poor, Paul says, extreme impoverished churches in Macedonia 
urgently pleaded, this is crazy, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, they urgently pleaded with a resistant Paul for the chance to give to others in Jerusalem. They were saying, we're very poor, but let us give. Paul was like, ah, you guys, are you sure you should be giving? I don't think you should be giving. You're so poor. They said, please. Paul said, okay, okay. They're celebrated. They're seen as expressions of the amazing grace that comes when the gospel takes hold of our heart and changes us from selfish to generous. But the principle commanded in the New Testament is proportional giving. That is, those who have much should share. Those who have much should share with those who have little. And those who have little are not expected to give as much as those who have much. Paul says it simply, we give according to our means. You give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Specifically reading here from 2 Corinthians, I believe this is 8. For if the readiness is there, meaning if you're willing, Your gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you should now be burdened. In other words, I'm not trying to, they're poor and you're rich, now let's make them rich and you can be poor and struggling. No, he says, I mean to have a matter of faithful, fairness or equality. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that maybe later, their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, and he's quoting from Exodus, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and who gathered little had no lack. What's he talking about? Whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul is quoting Exodus 16, where the manna from heaven fell down and was gathered by all the Israelites individually. And you know what happened at the end of the day? Some found out that they had more than others. They had gathered more. But when they went to weigh, this is a crazy miracle, Exodus 16, when they went to weigh what they had, so I come in with this huge pile of manna and I put it on the scale and then maybe my, my cousin comes in with this tiny little pile of manna and he puts it on the scale. When they weighed it, they found out that the density had equaled out. God had miraculously touched this bread so that I had just enough for me and my cousin had just enough for him. I got a whole bunch, but I didn't have too much. And he got a whole little, but he didn't have too little. So that's Paul's vision for the church. What he's saying is God's goal isn't to take from you so that you're poor, but through the generosity of others, you might have enough. So in our giving, if we have much, we should give more than those who have less. And you know, coming back to the old covenant, this was a mechanism that was built right into the tithe principle. If you made $100,000 and you gave 10%, you gave 10000 If you made $100 and you gave 10%, you gave $10. Those who have much, give much. Those who have little, gave little. Not begrudgingly and selfish, but that's, that's what Paul's saying here. Give according to your means. God's not up to, oh, he, he wasn't greedily lusting after the two pennies that widow had. I think that if she had saved those pennies or maybe given half a penny or maybe found a way to cut that penny into 10, he he would have been, yes, she's obeying. I'm pleased with this. If she'd given a tenth of her two pennies, she went 
She had insane grace. And, and that's good, and we should honor that. If people want to give more and generously, be very careful to talk them out of it. It very well could be the Holy Spirit working a great miracle in them. But let's look at what the text says. It says, give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Fifth, the household of God first. Fifth principle, the household of God first. Though scripture doesn't tell us how much to give beyond the call to be generous, the direction of our giving is clarified by both specific commands in the New Testament and the practices we see going on in the churches. 1 John 3 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, that's his Christian brother or sister, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Galatians 6.10, Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everybody your neighbors, your community, your co-workers, but especially, he says, those who are of the household of faith. In other words, especially your church. So as we look for needs, we would do well to start with the needs right around us in our own church family, among our own brothers and sisters. In the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, this terrible parable, this fear of God, enlivening parable. Jesus says that when we have cared for the material needs of those who have belonged to him, we have cared for him. And when we have ignored the material needs of those who have belonged to him, we ignore him. He says, whatever you did to the least of my, these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so believers have priority or should have priority in the New Testament for the direction of your giving the poor among you, the needy among you. And this can be done directly, member to member. Or in the first church, and how many churches still walk this out, the, the members brought their wealth to the leadership of the church who then saw that it went to those in need. And this seemed to be a New Testament pattern where, where a communal church pot, so to speak, was overseen, or at least Timothy received directions on how to distribute that church pot. And collections were taken into one church pot by the leadership of the church and then were sent to poorer churches. So this idea of consolidating by your giving into a, a benevolence fund that then the pastors or maybe there's a benevolence committee, hopefully down the road we can have a benevolence committee, that they then pass that out. It's a biblical picture. It hap it's already happening in the First Testament. And, and this is what happens. Needs come to Mike and I. It, it means that you don't always have to tell everybody, here's my need, here's my struggle. You can come to Mike and I and then we talk about it. What should we do? And we can go to the benevolence fund that comes from your monies and we can give to those people who need help. And we do that by God's grace. We do that a lot because our church has been generous historically. So that's a good reason why it's important to give to the church. Sixth, <clears throat> Sixth principle, a, a muzzle-free ox. <laughs> this is a, a local church need that's a little awkward for me. It's very awkward. It's the reason why I've, I've been putting this message off for like eight months. <clears throat> but it is a biblical principle. I'm starting to get coughed up here. This isn't like, uh, <laughs> this feels very perfect timing for me right now as I talk about you guys paying pastors. <clears throat> okay, maybe we should just stop here. That's God's sign. Um, it is a sense of humor, that is for sure. Um, 
So <laughs> Rob got up. I was like, he's leaving. He's done with this. He, now here we go. The pastor's going to ask for money. I'm out of here. Um, I'm scared that that happens. Okay, so it is a biblical principle <laughs> from Scripture, thank you, buddy, that, that churches um, do well to, to provide for the livelihood of the pastor preachers who preach the gospel to them. This is actually something that I can tell you is in the Bible. Uh, this is from 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, now the, the backdrop here is Paul is trying to tell them, hey, I could take your money, but I'm not gonna take your money. And we later find out that he was, at least in this season, he was probably taking money from another church. <laughs> the Macedonians were providing Paul's salary so that Paul could serve the Corinthians who were suspicious of his motives. You see? So he didn't have to ask them for money. He could just present the gospel to them. But we find out in 2 Corinthians that he says, I was robbing other churches to serve you. The Macedonians were supplying. There were other times where he tent made, but at least in this dynamic, he took a salary from the Macedonians so that the Corinthians could get his ministry free of charge. And that would alleviate any concerns they had that he was after their pocketbooks. But he's trying to explain to them, listen, it's reasonable for you to pay me. And he says this, don't you know that those who serve in the temple, he's talking about Malachi. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? We talked about this weeks ago. The priests would take and eat some of the sacrifices that were being offered by the people. This was God's command. They weren't stealing the drumsticks from the chickens. <laughs> God wanted them. You give me the breast, you keep the drumsticks. That's how it was worked out. They didn't use chickens, by the way. But, but his point is, he's saying, bringing, them, bringing that back to mind. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Now, who's the temple now? We are. The body of Christ. Those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. This is reaffirmed in Galatians 6, Verses six through seven, where Paul notes about teachers, he says about teachers, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. That's another uh, command for provision to be provided for teachers. We, we see this also commanded in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, where Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What did that phrase double honor refer to? Well, he goes on. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And quote, the laborer, he's quoting Jesus in, in Mark 7, I believe. The laborer deserves his wages, unquote. I don't know if that is Mark 7, by the way, but it is a quote from the Lord that he's repeating in 1 Timothy. Paul's repeating. The laborer deserves his wages. Paul references an ox not being muzzled, not being covered, its mouth not being covered, in, in order to reference the animal's ability to derive provision out of the grain he's treading on. The same place where he's laboring, Paul is saying, that's where the ox needs to also eat and be provided for. And then he adds the Lord's command that... Um, that workers are provided a wage, which might be an allusion to a Levitical command on the same thing. But the point is, it is right and good for churches to try to support the livelihood of their pastors and his family. And you have been the means by which I have cared and other pastors have cared for their families for a long time. And I am grateful to you. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I eat my dinner, I buy my gas, I pay for insurance, I, um, you know, go to Uno's on $5 pizza Mondays, and, you know, I, I do all that stuff because you provide for me, and um, that's how I live. So I, I, I want to say thank you. It just feels like I should spend the whole rest of the time just thanking you. Um, but thank you for providing for my family so that um, we can have food and, and shelter, and um, we have a beautiful house. It's, it was a foreclosure, so we paid a ridiculously small amount of money for it, but <laughs> we, we, we we're really blessed. Um, we, we have enough. And we have more, you know, so that we can give too. So it is good and right for churches to try to support the livelihood of their pastors and their families. But notice, there's nothing here that says that pastors should seek to be rich or should be rich for their work. Um, The idea of coming before the church for my money, for my jet plane or for my third house, very, very difficult to try to justify that from scripture at all. Um, it's, I mean, I, I want to be careful because I can't look into the hearts of Creflo Dollar and uh, these guys, uh, Kenneth Copeland, but it's, it's very hard to, um, to justify that from scripture um, if it's not just outright thievery. I, I need to be careful because I don't know their hearts. It's just very hard. Um, and, and I've got bad motives in my heart. You know, I've, I have an admixture of sin and the new man in me. But, but the point is, if you have a pastor who's full-time, they should have enough to provide reasonably well for their family. But this principle can also be abused by pastors who end up using their churches to get rich. Um, historically, we've tried to set wages for our pastors via a national compensation guideline that takes different factors into account, like cost of living, you know, maybe the number of kids you have. I, I don't remember all the factors. It's been a long time, uh, but, but your position, your education, the size. But, but what our more recent budget, with our more recent budget needs, we have tried to restructure health benefits and certain job benefits um, so that we can both have help the pastors and lighten the strain on the budget. Um, so I- in terms of salary, things have not changed for me since 2018 when Greg was helping us with financial decisions, but I'm, I'm in a good, pl- I feel like I, I'm in a, f- a, a place where we're making it. When my dad passed away, he left us like help for retirement and maybe some wedding stuff too, so we're, n- we're not even close to desperate. Um, but so my, my salary hasn't changed since 2018 as far as I know, but if anyone here wants to know how much I make uh, and why I make that, please feel free to ask me. I would never want you to be tempted by that if, if I can help you avoid that. I'd be happy to talk to you about my salary. And if you don't want to talk to me, talk to Mike and Pam um, and soon Kim as she catches up on everything financial. You can just ask, you know, don't be a jerk about it. Just like, you know, you wouldn't want someone to be a jerk about how much did they make? What did they make? You know, be kind, but you, you can ask. It's, it is money that's coming from you. Um, so I'm happy to have you guys know all that stuff. Um, seventh, the global household of God, the global household of God. We see in the New Testament a clear pattern of extra local giving. We see needs for the poor in the church, the needy in the church, not just the poor, but the needy. And we see also outside of the church, we see New Testament patterns of giving. Paul was supported by other churches in order to serve certain churches. He was going all over the world and churches were supporting him. He was also able to take collections for 
devastated churches from other churches. So this is another area of where we want to give. And this is why as a church we've supported Gospel Haiti, Frederick Rescue Mission, Crisis Pregnancy Centers, Marshall and Tammy, why we supported the Hagerstown Church Plant with thousands of dollars, why we bought um, a truck for a rune for 15 grand uh, a, a couple of years ago. It's why some of you are supporting Mike Christ in Zambia and other global ministries that you know in your heart you're doing. It's historically when we were part of Sovereign Grace, this larger denomination, why we were supporting their church planting ministry because the New Testament pattern shows that the churches give to other churches and they give to the, to the, to the ministry. So, now none of this means that we shouldn't care for the non-Christian poor or our local communities. We are to, go, to do good to all people, Paul says. But he follows that with this phrase, especially the household of God. So biblically, the priority seems to be on seeing for the care of God's people and supporting gospel work in our churches and in churches outside of ours, or Christians as well. So my last principle as we close this morning is we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. I wish Mike was here because he could tell me whether I should stop right now. (laughs) Mike, can you hear me? No, keep going. Somebody said keep going. I'll send you to him if you're upset with me about that. Can you guys handle a few more minutes? Okay. Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. We're told that without love in our giving, it profits us nothing. We're told not to give under compulsion. How do we get there? Well, part of that we covered at the outset. As we hold to God as our generous provider who will sustain us and provide for us, we're able to give from a place of less anxiety and more confidence. But it can also help us to remember that generosity will lead to blessing upon us. Generosity comes back to you. And it will also help us to understand that selfishness leads to the opposite. Selfishness comes back to you too. In the midst of calling the Corinthians to keep true to their commitment to the Jewish poor in Jerusalem, Paul says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap, reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. There it is again. I can't give you a percentage. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, you have to give. Not that way. Because God loves a cheerful giver, Paul says. And then he reinforces it. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the blessing they're going to give will not stop with their giving. It will come back to them. And it will come back to us. Now, careful here. We don't believe the prosperity gospel. We, it will not always be in material form necessarily. We don't give financially as a selfish investment in order to make financial gain. We don't want to turn God into a solid stock option or a guaranteed slot machine that never fails to deliver when we pull the lever. The blessing might primarily come back to us spiritually. Increased joy in God, a breakthrough in our marriage, new liberty against sin's bondage or against discouragement. It will certainly involve, by God's word, eternal reward. In other words, every penny spent on the needy in your church 
will be remembered by God and you will not lose your reward. But Paul's language here does seem to include reaping what we sow in such a way that material blessing is involved in this as well. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, God will provide for your needs too. You don't have to worry when you give that God will not provide for you. Many of us have heard stories about folks who've withheld giving for years and then felt convicted by some you know, sermon or thing they read and, and their deep financial trouble as they begin to follow God's principles starts to change because they're being generous and now God is being more generous with them. God is a provider and a generous provider. So we need to not let this be our central motivation. It's enough to know that God will take care of us, that we can give cheerfully because he has our back and loves it when we're generous, that he's gonna keep being generous because he's faithful. We don't have to worry that if we give too much, God will forget us. Sometimes you guys have probably done that. You've given away something, you're like, ah, did I give too much? I've, I've done that, you know? And, and, and then instead of being like, oh, God will take care of me, you, you start to worry. Was that stupid? Was that too reckless? Well, is God generous? Is he our provider? If we made a mistake but we had good intentions, is he still gonna be faithful to us? He is. We're not gonna be unsupported and left to our own resources. We can cheerfully give because our giving will only arouse his generos- generous heart, his generosity. And it's enough to know, we're really at the end here, getting you ready for communion. <laughs> it's enough to know that generosity is at the core of his nature. That's who he is at the exact core of his nature. He is a giver. He was rich, but he became poor so that we would become rich. He was perfectly, inconceivably, infinitely rich in happiness, in his communion with the Father and the Spirit. But because he, he just can't not give, because it's just his nature to be generous, he left that place of infinite spiritual wealth and he took on our poverty. He became our sin so that we would become his righteousness. And because of all he gave, we stand now eternally forgiven, righteous, holy, dearly loved sons and daughters. Let's go to the table now and celebrate this gift.